Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Donald Trump complicates appropriations and a border Ukraine aid deal as the Pentagon runs out of assistance for Kiev. After Turkey clears Sweden's NATO membership, Hungary pumps the brakes. China's economy continues to weaken as polls suggest that the country's leadership isn't as popular as they believe, something that I'm sure comes as a surprise to many of our listeners. North Korea rattles its nuclear saber. Bibi Netanyahu continues to reject peace efforts and blames Qatar for funding Hamas, even though Doha did so with Jerusalem's blessing. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security, and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic alliance at a very important time, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, uh, terrific having you back on the program. Uh, certainly an action-packed week. Um, Michael, after his win in New Hampshire, Donald Trump is, uh, ta-da, complicating uh, appropriations, supplemental, putting his voice on border. You're with us, against us. We'll primary you. Uh, This uh, also comes as uh, Senate Majority, uh, uh, excuse me, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had had an awkward moment uh, saying, uh, you know, admitting that he didn't want a border deal uh, because uh, it would take an issue off the table with which uh, to criticize uh, Joe uh, Biden in an election year. Uh, and you had a lot of Republican members, uh, uh, you know, say, hey, this is absurd. We really do need to strike a border deal. And as you've said for a long time, you're probably not going to get a better deal than you're going to get now. The concern now is the Trump is involved and, you know, is seen as wanting to help Putin by stopping aid to Ukraine. Where are we on all of this? Walk us through all the dimensions, uh, whether on the border side, uh, the supplemental side, which are the two conjoined uh, issues, and then appropriations and how it's all uh, going to play out. Well, you're right. Unfortunately, the border remains conjoined uh, to the supplemental. And you know, McConnell did say to his Senate colleagues earlier this week that the time and the political will to pass a bipartisan immigration and border security compromise are quickly running out and may have run out already. And McConnell in this meeting was acknowledging uh, Trump's continued stranglehold on the uh, Republican Party and actually referred to Trump as the nominee uh, during a closed door session uh, with his colleagues and said that we don't want to do anything to undermine him. Uh, However, uh, yesterday, uh, McConnell came out trying to clarify and dispel doubts about his commitment to a border Ukraine deal uh, and said he still supports pursuing a border security deal linked to Ukraine uh, funding. Uh, But yesterday, a senior staffer with with Congressman Steve Scalise, who's the House Majority Leader, went over to meet with Senate Republican chiefs and basically said that a border deal that's being put together with Democrats in the Senate has no chance of passing in the House. Uh, and, And he emphasized that if the Senate bill include some of the details that they've been hearing about, such as expedited work permits or enhanced expulsion authority that would only kick in after migrant border crossings exceeded 5,000 people a day, it has no chance of passing the House. They're not even going to take it up. They're not going to pull it on, on the floor. It is dead. Now, uh, that does not has not changed the strategy for Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, who still plan to move forward uh, with the Senate bill. However, the, the whip in the Senate uh, for the Republican Senator Thune 
uh, did say that, look, you know, we're going to drive hard to get this done, but if we can't get there, we're going to go to plan B, right? Which, you know, kind of reinforces what I said last week and the week before that if this dies, this is not going to die a quick death. This is going to die a very slow death because they're going to do everything they can to try and keep it alive. Uh, and as you mentioned, Trump has complicated things dramatically. Trump is against the Senate uh, deal, even though he hasn't even right. seen what it looks like yet. And to make matters worse, Trump released a statement last night encouraging all states to deploy their National Guard units to Texas to prevent the entry of illegals and to remove illegals uh, back across the border. Now, this, you know, this issue is so hot that again this morning, um, Speaker Johnson sent a letter to his colleagues telling them that, uh, that you know, he blasted the administration and said that they are going to continue to move forward with their impeaches, impeachment of Mayorkas. So, you know, at this stage, uh, I don't, as far as the supplemental goes, I, I, I there, people still want to get this done. They understand the importance of it. So now we're hearkening back to where we were under um, uh, with the debt ceiling discussions. People are talking discharge petition now as the hope uh, to get uh, Ukraine aid done. Uh, but this is going to go on for a very long time. Now, look, that overshadows the real near-term problem, which is FY24 appropriations. Right. Um, the Johnson's folks do not want to shut the government down when the CR expires on March 1st. They know that if they shut the government down, uh, it's going to be very difficult uh, to reopen. Uh, and they're going to have to do so with, with Democratic votes. At the same time, uh, they are not passing another short-term CR. They know they cannot pass a year-long CR, so they have to get uh, FY24 appropriations done. But we still do not have the allocations. We have a top-line number for probes, so we know what the deal is right. and how much we're going to spend. But it has to be broken up among the 12 subcommittees, and they haven't figured it out yet. If they don't figure that out in the next couple of days, they're really going to have a problem getting these bills done in time. Dove, I want to uh, bring you in on this. Uh, you wrote in The Hill uh, that in order to save uh, Ukraine, it's imperative that Democrats compromise and strike a deal here. Uh, and, and Michael, I want to get your sense on Dove's proposal and whether or not something is savable at this point. It is astonishing to me that we're going to let Ukraine collapse uh, over this. Uh, and, you know, I can get as cynical as you want about why it is we're going to end up there. But ultimately, if there's a way to save this, uh, I would like to find a way to save it. Dove, what's the way to save this in, in your estimation? Well, uh, it's getting harder and harder to save. I think Michael is right. Um, with every passing day and every bit of pressure from Trump, it does get harder. But uh, clearly they're going to one of the things that they've got to offer Johnson the Speaker Johnson, is changing this 5,000-person-a-day thing uh, because it, it it's just impossible to get Republican support for that. And quite frankly, if the nation knew, if the public knew that that was part of what the Democrats were asking for, they'd be against it. Remember, three-quarters of this country wants stronger immigration policy. And so uh, right. the Republicans have a lot of, you know, tailwinds behind them on this one. Now, um, the piece that I wrote in The Hill this morning uh, also said that if you the Ukraine sub fails, this doesn't just damage us vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. It damages our, the whole structure that we set up, the international truck structure we set up 75 years ago. And I've already received, because I've got a mailing list, I've already received an email from a top general in Europe who said, quote, it's all about American credibility. 
Uh, I couldn't uh, agree with you more. And that's one of the reasons why we've been saying, you know, as grateful and thankful as we are for the administration's effort in bringing the international community along, uh, it, we, we just have to do orders of magnitude more. Um, and it makes economic sense to do it, I think, which is uh, the, the White House's argument. Um, Michael, is this savable at all at this point? Or is it time to call it and just go, hey, we're going to go to secondary nation status because there's no way the Chinese and the Russians aren't going to make enormous hay out of this ultimately. And by the way, he's going to go to Lviv if he can. Right. I mean, once Ukraine is suitably exhausted, it's not like you're going to strike a peace deal. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I think Trump is out of his league. I mean, it's it's not it's not going to be like you guys keep 20 percent of Ukraine and we stop fighting. His attitude is going to be, I, I could go right to the border and who's going to stop me? Uh, I think you're exactly correct. I think not only does he, you know, obviously he goes through Ukraine and he takes Moldova. Uh, so I think Dove is correct. Um, you know, this gets harder and harder uh, every day. And the Democrats need to make some concessions uh, to Johnson. Uh, Johnson's made his point clear from day one. This is not a surprise to the administration. Uh, I do believe it's savable. I mean, we're still in January. I, we cannot right. give up. Uh, we have to plow through. And I think that near term, a lot of the attention is going to be on getting you know, FY24 appropriations bills done because they've got to get done by March 1st and March 8th. And remember, the State of the Union address is March 7th. That is Biden's last chance to make his case to the American right. people as to why this has to get done and what we're going to do and, and the concessions that he's willing to make uh, to help get us there. And these concessions are only going to help him in his reelection and only going to help Democrats in the tough seats that they have to protect uh, going into this election as well. I, I agree with you. They have to be more strategic about it. You may lose some folks on the fringes of your party, but you're going to win over a lot of people in the center who are going to make that difference for you, uh, I think, at the end of the day. And I think it's also important for members to find their courage. Ukrainians are dying, and this is an existential fight they're in, uh, and, and we have to support them. Um, Jim, uh, let me uh, bring you into this, right? I mean, the, the very big week for Europe. Last of the aid was uh, shipped over there from uh, the Pentagon. The Ukrainians are still getting some very uh, strong shots in against uh, the Russians, even if the broader uh, dynamic uh, is turning. And and then uh, we have news that the Turkish parliament approved um, uh, Sweden's uh, NATO membership. And then the Hungarians pumped the brake by saying, why don't you come to Budapest and let's uh, negotiate um you know, and, and the Swedes were like, I don't know what there is to negotiate about. I mean, we're we're either in or 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 we're out. Walk us through on on all of this, how dire the situation is. Uh, some of the you know Europeans are already, as we've been discussing for some weeks, starting to bet against the United States openly, as 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 you heard uh, for the reaction to Dove's piece, and then tie that in to where where we are and and whether it's utterly pyrrhic, whether Sweden and Hungary, uh, you know, Sweden ends up joining if at the end of the day, NATO is all the weaker for for it and, and the Russians end up winning in Ukraine. Well, Vago, that's a that's a heavy agenda for me. <laughs> I, a, I don't know anybody better suited to tackle it. Boy, I tell you, that's a shit sandwich, as we say. Uh, you know, I'm not sure I can say that on a family uh, show like this, but, um, you know, a couple things. Let me just, just turn to Sweden uh, and the Turks and the Hungary, Hungary first. I um, the thing is, yes, the Turkish Parliament uh, has gone ahead and passed through their support for Sweden uh, to join NATO, but now it's back on Erdogan's desk, and um, Erdogan's just uh, 
you know, I, I'm sure called Washington and said, OK, now how about the F-16s? And I say that because the administration sent a letter uh, to the Hill, I think yesterday, uh, pushing for the Turkish F-16 program to, to move. So now state of play concerning Turkey is on the Hill. Uh, and I don't think Erdogan's going to sign the paperwork and send it to Brussels until he feels he gets what he needs out of the United States. I think he's willing to wait uh, until he gets that. He's got this leverage and, you know, leverage doesn't come around like this every every day. So for Erdogan, that's, those F-16s are important and the administration is going to have to work something out on the Hill. And remember, in the past, Erdogan has waited till the summits begin before he concedes on something dealing with Sweden. Uh, and then he's hailed as a great hero and a great diplomat uh, for doing it at the last minute. And so, you know, so I think the, the game is it's an end game that we're in now with the Turks. It's an end game. And, uh, um, and we'll just see how this unfolds on the Hill. That's where the action is. With the Hungarians, you know, they're pathetic. And I hate to say that because I like Hungary and Hungarians and I've worked with Hungary for decades. But they're pathetic right now in trying to use their leverage the way the Turks would. Uh, you know, having the, the Swedes come to Budapest negotiate is just a slap. Uh, so let's let's, uh, you know, let's see the Hungarian parliament. Uh, you know, you hear mixed reviews coming out of them. Uh, at the end of the day, Orban, of course, is the one who makes the decision. And if Orban wants to try to get something out of Sweden. I'm not sure what the Hungarians want, but if he wants to look like a hero as well, then there's going to be an end game there too. So we're almost out of the woods, but we're not out of the woods yet. I hope I'm wrong. I hope next week uh, both uh, uh, authoritarian leaders sign off on the paperwork. Uh, but, you know, it's leverage and they want to get stuff. And I think particularly for the Turks, there is more that they want. And this is out of the United States. And let's see what happens. It's concerning... Uh, what you were rolling out on 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 Ukraine and Europe and uh, the United States and the supplemental. I mean, it's hard to top what Michael and Dove were just saying. I mean, uh, I, I think uh, the, a couple things, though. I am continually impressed with Ukraine's spirit. I mean, uh, in terms of the battlefield, they're not throwing up their hands. They are very creative. They're doing very creative things with the Patriot missile system, with a lot of other uh, Western assistance that's had, that has already come their way. Uh, I saw a video of the F-16, an F-16 being flown by a Ukrainian pilot uh, doing barrel rolls, you know. Uh, and so so they continue to push forward. And the, frankly, it's quite inspiring to see, despite the, the poison coming out of Washington, uh, they are there. They are continuing to fight. Uh, and do very clever things. And the Russians are paying a, a price. I, 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 I'm hopeful that we're going to see Europe begin to really fill the gaps being left by the United States. It's, it's, it's going to be hard for them to do that because they don't have the stores uh, to, give, uh, to give to Ukraine right now, the ammunition and the things that, that, that Ukraine needs right now, not in two years, but right now. Uh, and I'm hoping that they're uh, they're going to redouble their efforts based on what's coming out of Washington, that that this supplemental package is is flat and uh, and might not uh, be coming their way. And the final point is this. We, we have to keep in mind what the situation is going to look like on in July when there's the NATO summit in Washington. Uh, will we see uh, a, a fighting period in Ukraine uh, where suddenly Russia is going to start making gains on the battlefield? Uh, because the, the the ammunition isn't enough uh, for the Ukrainians to, to hold them back. Are, are we going to meet in Washington with a 
with a, a tragedy unfolding uh, in Ukraine by July. Uh, this is this is something that's going to be uh, devastating for Biden politically, for sure, and devastating for Ukraine and the whole effort that's been made. Uh, and that's something we have to worry about and we have to hedge against. This is where uh, Europe is going to have to come in and help us on this. And it's and a lot of it is looked at looking at the ammunition stocks. We have to help Ukraine hold the line until we can sort this stuff out. Uh, and uh, so it's it's it's, right. it's a very gloomy uh, look ahead. Does the one point two billion dollar right? I mean, NATO um, uh, contracted for one point two billion dollars in artillery shells. European uh, makers are already uh, boosting production. Uh, and Patrick, I'm going to come to you uh, in a moment. I mean, we have a whole bunch of things to discuss uh, in in Asia as well, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. But um, uh, and but uh, you know, Jim. Does that $1.2 billion help, or is that actually too far in the future for it to be immediately useful for the Ukrainians? I, I have to say, that's the problem, is that if we have uh, a production uh, that can immediately begin with this money and deliveries that can happen soon, that, that would be wonderful. But I don't think that's the state of play right now in Europe. Right. Uh, they they need this artillery shell uh, yesterday. <laughs> And uh, right. and I but that doesn't mean we throw our hands up and don't do anything. We just have to press harder. Uh, and uh, right. I mean, the NATO support agency, uh, the reason they did this, uh, and I should say the NATO support and procurement agency did this uh, so that nations can give from their stocks, but then replenish. Right. So that it's not NATO directly uh, producing uh, stuff uh, for for Ukraine. Patrick, as usual, you've been very uh, patient. Um, Japan really has come through for Ukraine with uh, Patriot missile, uh, missiles. What can the Indo-Pacific do for Ukraine uh, while the United States gets its uh, shambolic act together? Well, uh, Japan is indeed uh, playing a leading role on the Ukraine war, even if uh, some of it's going directly through the U.S. Uh, onto uh, Ukraine. And that's partly because I think um, Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida, sees himself as uh, a counterpoint to Xi Jinping. And, and if uh, she is aligned essentially with Russia on this war, um, uh, despite their claims of neutrality, uh, Japan wants to make sure that it's on the side of the rules-based order and defending uh, the ability to make sure aggression doesn't pay in Europe so it doesn't uh, lead to war in Asia. Um, Korea just increased the amount of money they're going to be spending to help logistics in the Red Sea, for instance. Um, you know, So for the wars in both the Middle East and in uh, Europe, um, our key Asian allies, including Australia, even New Zealand has sent a small group to uh, the Red Sea. Um, you know, Our Asian allies are doing a lot, and I think we'll hear more about that Come the NATO summit in July, by the way, when everybody's here in Washington and we can see how these Indo-Pacific four uh, partners of NATO are pulling their weight and then some, not just uh, in Asia, but uh, increasingly uh, in our other other fights. And I think this is really an important uh, thing when when we're lagging, uh, you know, standard missile six production is delayed. That's supposed to be helping to counter uh, the Chinese capabilities. Um, other deployments, uh, including supplies to Taiwan, uh, have been slow. So we we really do have to make sure that we appreciate what our Asian allies are doing for our interests as well as their own interests. I'm going to uh, bring uh, Dove uh, in on this uh, in a minute because he's got an industrial-based thought uh, as well. 
But what is the receptiveness of Indo-Pacific governments to have a defense industrial surge, a concerted one? And isn't that where we need to go to bring our Indo-Pacific allies, European allies, and us together and actually get much more coordinated and serious about this? I mean, we're doing this, but it seems like a little bit more on the edges and a little bit more in an ad hoc fashion than necessarily an organized one. Because if you put the conjoined industry, defense industrial might of all of these nations together, it would be a very, very impressive thing. And if you want to talk about deterrence, it would send a message. Patrick, is there appetite for that uh, in the conversations you've had with uh, your Japanese and and Korean uh, friends and and those across the region who might also similarly be uh, inclined? Australia, for example. I think so. And I think India as well, when you think about the defense technology side of it, that is their interest. So Australia, I heard from the Secretary of Defense just recently that, yes, absolutely. Um, Japan, certainly. And I think under this Korean government as well. So in all these cases, uh, that's the case. But we are lagging far behind the potential. And I think that's your point, Vago, that even though collectively we clearly are surpassing in our power, we can't really pull it all together. And in some ways, that's what China's now counting on. And that's what Russia's counting on, that we we don't have our act together. Dove? Well, I, I think that's right. And I want to expand a little bit on what uh, Jim said. First of all, uh, European stocks are very, very low. Uh, thank God Japan and Korea and South Korea are helping out. But the, the, what NATO, the NATO billion dollars, uh, unless it's going to go to industrial base expansion, in other words, not just producing stuff out of the current plants, but building new plants, there's still going to be a problem because these countries in Europe are going to have to replenish their own low stocks. And I don't see how they do that and support Ukraine, even in the longer term, unless they expand their base. And it's not at all clear that there's any inclination to do that. Uh, One other point, since I'm on, um, one thing I'm hearing from Europeans, and Jim can uh, either confirm or, or contradict, is don't expect anything more about Ukraine coming into NATO when they meet in July. It's just not gonna happen. Jim? Well, that's that's a great uh, point, uh, um, uh, Dove. You know, this is something that um, I'm hearing a lot of squeaks and squawks about just how Ukraine is going to fit in on the agenda in July. Um, you know, I think it, in the first blush, uh, after Vilnius, particularly, the U.S. said, we don't want another food fight at, at the Washington summit, the celebration. Uh, another food fight over Ukraine membership in NATO. Um, we're not we're going to handle all of that quietly behind the scenes. It's not going to be on the agenda. I've heard that some allies uh, pushed back and said, yes, it will be. And they were slapped down. So I think uh, I think there's there is um, some under, some behind the scenes uh, turbulence on this in, in Brussels. And, and but but on the other hand, uh, allies understand the political significance for Biden of this summit. And I don't think um, allies necessarily want to jump into it and be a spoiler uh, at the uh, at the summit and wreck things for uh, Biden right before the uh, Republican National Convention. So there's that playing off as well. So I think that issue is still in play. Um, but one more point is a lot will depend on what's happening on the battlefield, uh, as well as in the U.S. Congress. If by the time July comes around, um, we're there, we're in extremists in some way uh, on the battlefield, and suddenly membership for Ukraine becomes 
uh, crucial, this issue might come roaring back. So, you know, never say never in terms of how this will play coming in July. And a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of podcasts are brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Um, We're going to go into a little bit of a lightning round. And Patrick, uh, I want to go to you. Uh, Is, uh, you know, there's a lot of concern, probably more concern than we've had in a little while, uh, about North Korea's uh, saber rattling. And to some, this is more of the same. Uh, the You know, uh, Kim Jong-un likes to be in the limelight and the spotlight, and he's been pushed to the edges, whether about Ukraine or, uh, you know, in the wake of October 7, and now the Houthi attacks. Dove, I'm going to come to you and, and Michael in a little bit. Give us kind of a quick sense about whether or not this is something different, or is this, as some have suggested, uh, something that Moscow, Pyongyang, Beijing, and Tehran have sort of figured out that, hey, this would be a good opportunity for you to start uh, to act up a little bit to to consume people's bandwidth. What's what's your sense uh, on on what's causing these emissions from Pyongyang? Well, uh, Kim Jong-un is sensing uh, an opportunity to both balance major power, to advance his strategic armament, uh, and to come out uh, with some potential new options diplomatically in the in the months and years ahead. Um, you know, he's been preparing for war in his talk. Uh, he's written off the United States in the Yoon administration as diplomatic partners are not going to give him concessions. Uh, after all, when he walked away from Hanoi in 2019, um, he realized the Americans are not going to give him what he wanted. He's been doubling down on strategic arms. He's got a five-year plan. He's in the middle of it. He's been launching lots of missiles, including this underwater nuclear tactical drone, uh, you know, strategic cruise missiles, uh, you name it. Uh, he's been doing it. Um, and that's led to a couple of uh, North Korean watchers uh, to write a very provocative piece uh, 10 days ago, a couple of weeks ago, Robert Carlin and Sig Hacker arguing that Kim Jong-un is different this time. He wants war. Um, they they get half of the argument right, that North Korea has, under Kim, positioned himself differently with this defense partnership with Russia that is unprecedented, as a White House official said this week, um, and could change the, uh, the the military balance. But they get it wrong by suggesting there's really evidence that uh, Kim is ready for war. He's not. In fact, he's repurposed old propaganda posters uh, that also didn't lead to war when they used them last time. Um, he's uh, talking about his uh, backward ec- economy and he needs a 10-year plan. Uh, he's sending munitions to Russia rather than stockpiling. So all the indicators are just the opposite that he's he's uh, looking at war in the near term. But that doesn't mean he's not looking for advancing his strategic interests here. And there uh, he's about to welcome Vladimir Putin. The Chinese are nervous. They've got the vice foreign minister uh, you know, of foreign affairs in town in Pyongyang right now to uh, beat Putin to, uh, to, to Pyongyang. Um, in order to make sure that Chinese interests are uh, in check, because there was a very senior think tanker from China um, who spoke this week in Beijing about um, how she saw this as uh, a pressure tactic against Beijing. Um, and so there's, there's it, you know, this plays and cuts a lot of different ways, but there's no doubt that uh, Kim is helping the arms program of bad guys uh, in, in the Middle East and in, in Europe especially this uh, Russian relationship, which I think will mostly advance his space program as he tries to put up more military satellites and tries to refine his uh, ICBM with a with a better reentry vehicle 
those could be key things that change. And I think that's why the senior director for arms control from the White House this week said we are watching and worried that that transfer of technology from Russia could change the balance of power. Um, and if I can have the one minute version of this, uh, some interesting uh, headlines, uh, you know, about uh, continuing problems with the Chinese economy, uh, continuing, you know, sh- shrinking population. And on top of that, some uh, pretty interesting polling uh, that suggests that actually the government is not as popular as it would like to believe uh, it is. What does all of that mean? And do those actually help act as a deterrent? Uh, on China uh, in in the meantime, right? Are those sort of bandwidth consumers that would temper, for example, Beijing, uh, whether over Taiwan or, or elsewhere in the region, in your estimation? Well, having consumed hundreds of stories on this just this week alone, um, it's really complicated to explain. Other than to say the following, Xi Jinping is not giving an inch that he is concerned about the Chinese economy. Secondly, a lot of businesses are really expecting that China's going to turn more pragmatic, going to be doing what it says, which is being more open to business. Uh, and indeed, things like the Chinese stocks that are so down and as Japan stocks have risen, uh, that this is a, a good value. So there may be a, a shift here. And we'll see. I mean, Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi are meeting in, in, in Bangkok today and this weekend. Um, and that will set this, the agenda for U.S.-China diplomatic relations uh, for this year. Um, but there is a sense that China needs economic help and that this could be a stabilizing effect. I, I remember saying that in 2021, I think, and, and and the year was terrible. So, you know, we shouldn't predict uh, whether the economic woes of China improve relations or trigger war, which I don't think it's going to do in the short term. And indeed, there's a new survey out of CSIS that was really good on Taiwan expertise, uh, both from Taiwan and the United States, it said, look, we're very pessimistic about uh, the ability to manage the Taiwan Strait issue over the next five years, two-thirds saying we're not going to manage it successfully. But um, in general, they thought that it wasn't going to be uh, you know, so bad that it was going to be triggering war, that it was more likely, if anything, to be more the economic uh, kind of quarantine blockade, which is could be an act of war, but nonetheless uh, is not something that is uh, seen as an invasion in the next few years. Rick Waters, the former head of uh, the China desk at the State Department, who's uh, just back from the region, talking this week uh, with Bonnie Glazer at the German Marshall uh, Foundation about, we need to understand that uh, she has a lot of rungs on this escalation ladder uh, for coercion, short of blockade. And so we're likely to see the same mix of things out of China as it needs to improve its economy, but still wants political control. So Xi Jinping doesn't give the pragmatists what they want exactly in the business world, but he gives some of it. Uh, and and at the same time, if he sees things in the South China Sea or over Taiwan that he doesn't like, uh, he may well get uh, more muscular than he's been in the past. Thanks very much for Patrick. And in the spirit of continuing with our lightning round, I'm going to go to Michael uh, to give us uh, the congressional view. Dove, uh, I want to get your sense on Israel and then uh, maybe go back to Michael and have each of you take a bite at the post New Hampshire apple as well. Michael, what's the congressional view uh, on the administration's uh, strikes on the Houthis? We've been calling for this for a long time. It wasn't one and done. It is uh, a concerted effort to try to degrade as much as possible um, the, the Houthi uh, capability. Um, what's what's the congressional sense on all of this, Michael? 
Well, I, look, I think overall, for the most part, I think people are supportive, but they, they're quietly supportive. I've been surprised by some of the reaction, though. I mean, remember last year we were talking about getting rid of AUMFs, and now all of a sudden let's talk about another AUMF. Now, I expected you know criticism from the progressives, which Biden did get, but there was a letter sent to Biden earlier this week by several senators, and it was a bipartisan letter, which really kind of surprised me. I mean, the letter to Biden, it does condemn the Houthi attacks. It acknowledges the attacks are unacceptable. They acknowledge that it impedes essential uh, international commerce. They say that as commander in chief, that the president has the power to defend the United States. Uh, directing attacks against defending, uh, uh, protecting commercial shipping is within that power. But then they go on to say, however, most vessels transitioning through the Red Sea are not U.S. ships, which raises questions about the extent to which these authorities can be exercised. Right. And they believe that Congress must be carefully deliberate before authorizing military action. Um, and they go on to say that unless there's a need to repel a sudden attack, the Constitution requires that the United States not engage in military oh, action boy. absence favorable vote by Congress. Exactly. That, that was my take exactly. I'm shocked by this letter. I'm, I'm pulling my hair out. And the fact that- Who, who, who originated it? Senator Tim Kaine, uh, Senator Chris Murphy, Senator Todd Young, and Senator Mike Lee. Uh, and- I mean, the, the president just can't win here. And I think if you've got some of these concerns, especially on the Democratic side, you do this behind closed doors. You right. don't publicly slap this guy around for doing the right thing, for showing that he's strong, for protecting American interests. And those ships, even though many of them are not U.S. ships, they are coming to the U.S. Right? They, if you know, that, by not right. being able to, right? This is going to increase inflation. It's going to increase costs by people having to navigate around the Red Sea to get their goods here. Uh, and the, you know, the president just can't catch a break, and he can't win when I think that he's doing the right thing here. Uh, and, um, and frankly, even Tim Kaine went on to say separately from his letter that I think that we need to get an answer on the strategy on the de-escalation of this. What, do you, what is he talking about here? I mean, yeah. the Democrats aren't asking Biden for a strategy on Ukraine, but yet now all of a sudden they're asking for a strategy on this. And I just think they've got to stop slapping this guy around and rally behind him uh, before it's too late. I, I, I think uh, the Democrats are doing all they can to help Donald Trump get elected uh, president of the United States. That's my view. At every turn, they're going out of their way to try to make the president look weak at a time when the Republicans are trying to characterize the president as weak, even though it's a president in this bipartisan group has actually been leading on some of the things that are most important. So Tim Kaine knows better than this, really does, uh, I think, for uh, somebody who who does have a very fine uh, foreign policy uh, mind. Dove, uh, you want to take a quick bite at this uh, apple? Well, I, I think Michael's completely right. I mean, there is a problem, which is we initially gave the impression that somehow we could take out the Houthis really quickly. That's just not happening. And until we face the reality that the Iranians are finding all kinds of ways to get more equipment to the Houthis um, and figure out what we want to do vis-a-vis -vis Iran, we're going to have a problem because each time we say we've knocked out 20% of what the Houthis have, but we've already, in theory, knocked out 60 to 80%. And we know that's not the case. And the Houthis continue to fire their, their missiles right. and drones and so on. Uh, I do agree, though, that I don't understand why somebody like Tim Kaine in particular whom I know and tremendously respect, would come out publicly and put the president in the box he's put him in. Uh, Michael's right there. Um, uh, Dove, uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about Bibi Netanyahu and his uh, unfortunate comments about the Qataris. 
Um, right. I mean, I'm sorry. The Qataris, you know, there was no aid that was going to Hamas that was not approved or blessed in one fashion or another uh, by by Jerusalem, uh, ultimately. Um you know, we have the International Court of Justice that stopped short of declaring a genocide, but did say that the Israelis should be treading much more carefully than they are uh, at this point. Where are we? Because, the, you know, the, Bibi is going to do whatever he wants on the timetable he wants to do it, even if it is devastating for the Israeli economy, even if it's devastating for the relationships around the world. Uh, and, and ultimately, where where are where is this going meaningfully and and what does the slap against the qataris ultimately mean who i believe have been trying to play a constructive role in this uh, entire episode uh, among well, among other countries by the way well bill burns is over is going over to israel ahead of the cia uh to try to talk sense to uh bb uh it's imp- virtually impossible to do so remember again what is bb's primary objective to keep his government together so he can stay out of jail. He still has his crazy ministers who, you know, who say all kinds of outrageous things, kicking uh, the Gazans out of their terror, out of their homes. Um, you know, one member of the government saying, let's nuke them. All of this stuff, by the way, was uh, fodder for the South Africans who are no friends of Israel and have supported the Palestinians forever to make their case to the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, which went 15 to 2 against Israel. It's a miracle they didn't tell Israel they were guilty of genocide. It's a miracle they didn't tell Israel to stop right now. But Israel's on very thin ice. And not only that, 21 Israeli soldiers were recently killed in an ambush. Yes, It was the biggest number ever for a single incident. And A lot of Israelis are saying, why is this continuing? The hostages are not coming out. There are more and more demonstrations to say, cut a deal and get the hostages out. Hamas clearly is sort of playing games with that, no question. But it's not at all obvious that Netanyahu, who continues to say the only way to get the hostages out is to continue the war. Well, quite frankly, the longer they continue the war, the more hostages are going to die. And so... There's there's clearly trouble in Israel. Benny Gantz, who has spoken out against Netanyahu more than once now, who's part of the war cabinet, his popularity is skyrocketing and Netanyahu's popularity is in the dirt. But it doesn't matter to the Israeli prime minister. And hopefully Bill can get through. I think at some point, President Biden is going to have to start threatening Netanyahu, not just urging him, but threatening him. Uh, does that uh, is that going to work, given that uh, a BB um, still has so much congressional support uh, at the at the end of the day? Right. I mean, BB has got a brilliant strategy. Biden either uh, alienates his base or alienates the American Jewish vote. Right. You can have it one way or another. And either of those, as uh, Jim earlier in the conversation noted, is not exactly a tasty sandwich to eat. Right. Well, you know, the, first of all, on the American Jewish vote, uh, if you look at where the American Jewish community is, its priority is not to get rid of Hamas. I mean, yes, it wants Hamas defeated, but priority number one is to get the hostages out. Right. And um, in that case, 
it depends on how Biden tries to pressure BB, what exactly the pressure is. If it's, oh, I'm not going to support any additional aid, he's stuck anyway because Obama made a 10 year deal. But there's still lots of ways that the United States supports Israel in ways that are not terribly public and that have been very important over the years. And those are the kinds of things that are still in the president's quiver. Now, whether he needs to do it now or wait somewhat longer is is a separate issue. But to assume that the American Jewish community is going to continue to support uh, Netanyahu when it when most most American Jews can't stand him to begin with. And secondly, are very concerned about the hostages. And now they've been in, in you know, uh, imprisoned for well over 100 days. Uh, I think Biden has more leverage than perhaps you've implied. Is And uh, very briefly, the Qatar slap, does that have any lingering impact? Uh, even though the Qataris said, look, we're continuing to negotiate both on hostages, on aid, on temporary ceasefires uh, and, and the like. Do you, does, does it change the, the vector and the dynamic at all? Or Well, I think, I think the Qataris are, are acting like adults. They're saying uh, they're saying the right things. We're going to keep working to get the hostages out. That appeals to a large percentage of the Israeli population. It appeals right. to Americans as well. I mean, if Israel wants to settle accounts with the Qataris, it should do it after this war is over. Not right now when they're still playing, as I say, quite responsibly. And as you pointed out, if, uh, you know, Israel knew the money was going to uh Hamas, and unless they were totally wet behind the ears, the Israelis, they knew what Hamas was doing with the money. Well, and it was it was purposeful, right? I mean, in the in the idea that you don't want a two state solution and you need that rationale in order to split the two apart, and it and it and you know, and unfortunately, it worked until October seven, uh, and and the tragedy that unfolded then. All right, uh, very quickly going around the horn, uh, Michael, uh, you get more than thirty seconds to talk about New Hampshire uh, and its impact because last week you got a little bit short sheeted, uh, and then I want to get everybody's sort of take whether or not it it. Moved Moves any needle that we didn't. I mean, our expectation was Donald Trump was going to become the nominee. He swept in Iowa historically. Folks were saying, oh, you know, Nikki's got a shot in uh, New Hampshire. Not so much. Uh, and it looks like she's going to get creamed in South Carolina. Trump only has, what is it, 40 delegates now of 1,200 that he needs. Um, anyway. Take it away. What 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 does last week mean, if anything? And then everybody takes a quick bite of that, and then we say goodbye to everybody and wish them a nice weekend. Okay. Well, Trump has thirty two delegates. Okay. Okay. Um, thirty two. I I gilded right. that lily a little. <laughs> so, hard fought. Hard fought. Delegates. Right. Yes. Um, and look, he, he um, yes, he he won New Hampshire, uh, and he got fifty four percent of the vote. He only got forty three percent of the vote. Uh, now look, I, I think it was still showing too that about half the Republicans who are voting still want uh, somebody else. It's just the, the bright side here. Although, of course, after Trump won, you know, he raged about uh, about Nikki Haley. You know, he uh, called her unelectable. He went after Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, saying he's on drugs. He hinted that Nikki Haley will be under investigation. He mocked her clothes. Uh, later in the week, he threatened her contributors, saying anybody who contributes to her will be uh, barred from uh, the, the MAGA camp. Permanently um, barred. Permanent, and permanently it's a barred. big exactly. T-shirt. It's yes. now a big T-shirt. It's big, right. big. Yep, yep. So you know, remember, we've only had two. You know, well, one primary, one caucus, but yet 
after the, the his when in New Hampshire, uh, RNC Chairwoman uh, Ronna McDaniel uh, said that it's time to for Republicans to unite around the frontrunner uh, and defeat uh, Joe Biden. Now you mentioned delegates, right? Under RNC rules, Trump has to win 1,215 delegates. He has 32, and Nikki Haley has 17. And, you know, we still have 48 states to go. And, you know, people who are th- worried about the threats of democracy, uh, I think Ron McDaniel's got to get her talking points straight that now's not the time to say we're going to rally around Donald Trump. And up until yesterday, uh, there was a move uh, with the RNC to have a resolution passed that would declare Trump already the party's presumptive nominee. But because of substantial backlash, uh, that was uh, done away with. Now, um, look, you, you called it last week. You said that Ron DeSantis dropped out next. He did. He dropped it actually before uh, the the um, uh, the New Hampshire primary. He endorsed um, uh, Donald Trump. Tim Scott endorsed Trump uh, in advance of New Hampshire and advance of uh, South Carolina. And, you know, and, and Tim Scott saying, you know, we need a president who's going to unite our country. I, I mean, some of the statements these guys make is almost laughable. Uniting the country is the last thing on, on Trump's agenda. And Tim Scott also said that we need a president who will protect our Social Security. And Nikki Haley, uh, later that week when asked about Social Security, said, how am I not a conservative? I've never once said I want to cut Social Security. These are the same people that rage about socialism and communism, but yet they're willing to fall on their sword for what is arguably a socialist program, uh, which is you know, Social Security, and the same uh, you know, with, with Medicare. But when DeSantis did sound some alarm bells about Trump's chances in November, and I think he's right. I mean, there's a whole swath of GOP voters who appear that they're committed to not voting for Trump in November. If you look at the Iowa caucuses, 43% of Nikki Haley uh, supporters said they would back Joe Biden over Trump, right? And Republican voters in New Hampshire expressed concerns about Trump, but 47% of those Republican primary voters saying that they believe Trump would be unfit to serve as president if he's convicted in one of these four upcoming trials, which is very possible. And remember, Trump is not a first-time candidate. He's a known quantity. It's been much harder for him to win back people that he has alienated, uh, including uh, those once willing to, to vote Republican. And the latest poll from New York Times shows that in, in independence, Biden is beating Trump 50% uh, percent, uh, to 38%. So I, I still think that we have a long way to go and there's still some hope to Biden. But getting back to your point earlier, this is really in the Democrats' camp, but they get their voters out and they continue to support Joe Biden. Joe Biden's going to win uh, this election. Um, I, uh, I, I find all of this uh, fascinating, and I am still not convinced. Uh, I, I, I think he's Teflon enough that if, even if he gets A, let's see if any of the convictions hold and are not undone on appeal. You know, th- these are not his first legal rodeos. Um, and, and, and we'll, we'll see very quickly, uh, everybody, Jim, European response, uh, uh, Patrick, uh, Indo-Pacific response, your own responses, Dove, uh, brings it home. We've got about two and a half minutes. Go ahead. Round the horn. Well, on Europe, it's, it's, they're gloomy, uh, more gloomy than they were three weeks ago. The nuance uh, of the elections, uh, the primaries and Trump's strength, et cetera, that Michael so well laid out, you know, that's not really understood so well in a lot of European capitals. They're just seeing a Trump marching through uh, marching through Georgia, you know. Uh, And so I think this this is compounds their gloom and they're starting to get alarmed. And we're getting a lot of visitors here in Washington, a lot of allies coming in saying, is this true and what should we be doing? And. Um, there's there's a there's a bit of uh, of anxiety that we're really starting to see come out of Europe. Patrick, well, I think the uh, Trump effect is uh, 
very much at play in the Indo-Pacific region. Our allies are worried about uh, the devaluation of their relevance and importance uh, and that they'll be uh, thrown under the bus. Uh, if you're Taiwan, if you're Japan, doesn't really matter. They, they both think uh, that um, they're, in, they're in danger if Trump is uh, reelected. Um, they are working, though, to hasten some agreements. So the Koreans are trying to negotiate right now a new special measures agreement with the United States, get that done and sealed before the election happens. Um, so in some ways, the Trump effect is to hasten and accelerate some negotiations and make more allied contributions and burden sharing. That's good for the United States. On the other hand, some want to delay and wait and see what happens, including our potential adversaries, North Korea, China, Russia. They're all wondering. The Chinese are not sure about whether Trump is a benefit or detriment for their interests. And they're very worried about uh, tariffs, just as American taxpayers should be as well, since it's effectively a tax on the American people. Gov. Well, uh, I'm I'm with Michael uh, up to a point in, in the sense that uh, Trump has doesn't have it all yet. And the reason is that Haley is not dropping out. Trump is sending out emails trying to drum up support for pushing her to get out, but she won't. And so then we're going to have her challenging him to debates. She's a good debater. The question will then be, is he going to show up for a debate or and possibly look bad or not show up and she'll keep calling him a coward that plus his incendiary language particularly attacking her as a woman uh could do him some real harm so i wouldn't rule out the the possibility i mean it's only maybe 20 percent, but i would not rule out the possibility that something happens and i'm leaving all the legal stuff aside something happens that puts him in a much tighter box and right now he appears to be in. Guys, thanks very much. Terrific program. Uh, as always, hope you guys have a great weekend and a great week and look forward to having you back on the program uh, next week. A quick reminder to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our own JJ Gertler. Uh, uh, please uh, have a great weekend and tune in Sunday for our business roundtable. Until then, have a great weekend uh, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks very much.